Good morning. If you would turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue to make our way through Ephesians. Happy Mother's Day to our mothers and to our grandmothers, we might add. We hope and pray it will be a beautiful and happy day for you. Uh, just one announcement, we do not have our service tonight, so enjoy your families this afternoon and this evening. And I do want to say that you guys have been praying for uh, Jose and Vinny's daughter for some time, Yumina, and uh, she is now, her cancer is in remission, so they want to thank you for diligently praying for her, and God answers prayer. He doesn't always answer it the way we want him to answer it, uh, but we know because of our great high priest who, who's gone before us, um, he sanctifies our prayers as we make them to the Father. The, the, the high priest before us sanctifies our prayers so they fit God's holy will. And so our prayers matter. Prayers of the righteous availeth much, and they are celebrating that today, and we are celebrating with them. Well, if you would, look with me in Ephesians 5. Last time we looked at verses 15 to 21, which could be summed up, the wise walk. And now he's continuing this thought in verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's pray. Father, we come to a text that has been made controversial for unnecessary reasons in these past decades. We pray that your spirit would give us clarity in this passage today, knowing that there is no command given by the living God that is burdensome to your people. So we pray, Father, for grace in discerning this passage, and that it would serve as a means of grace for our marriages, as our marriages have been called to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for his sake. Amen. William Farley, in his wonderful book on parenting, the gospel-empowered parenting, he writes of a couple that he counseled, uh, Frank and Kim, who had been married 30 years. They had raised four kids, but their marriage was a war. Frank was harsh with Kim. He rarely communicated with her and often would look down on her. And finally, Kim shut down. She quit cleaning, she quit cooking, uh, and she withdrew from Frank emotionally, and she withdrew from him relationally. They tried to compensate with their kids. So they would wake up every morning and faithfully have family devotions, reading the scriptures together, praying together. Uh, they were at church every Sunday, and they were in a church where the word of God was faithfully exposited and the gospel was made clear. And they meticulously protected their children 
from outside worldly influences. In fact, Frank and Kim tried everything that a parent could ever do except the first principle of parenting, that is their marriage. And now the children are grown. Three of the four children are completely out of church, and the one that does go to church only is nominally committed, a nominal church attender. So the question is, what went wrong? Well, their marriage preached an unappealing gospel. Now, if you ask most parents, what's the most important thing you can do to raise children, and in particular, Christ followers, you will get various answers. But you know what will rarely be mentioned? Well, the example of a godly marriage. And that, Paul would submit, is the first principle of parenting. And if Scripture gives us a blueprint for a godly marriage, it's Ephesians 5. This is the classic text. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. And in keeping with that point that marriage preaches the gospel, look with me real quickly in verse 32. This mystery, that is of marriage, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying the whole purpose of marriage, the central purpose of marriage is not for your personal fulfillment, though fulfillment comes as a fruit. It's about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's argument. From before time began, God had marriage on his mind. He's preparing a bride for his bridegroom's son. That's why Jesus in several places, including Luke 5.34, would call himself the bridegroom. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible begins with a marriage in a garden and it ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with a marriage in a garden? It would take a cross and a resurrection of the bridegroom to bring this marriage to pass. The reason for that is, the, is that the, the bride is in rebellion to the bridegroom, naturally. And so to overcome that rebellion, he has to go to the cross, and he has to absorb the wrath of God, and he has to reconcile the bride to the father through the bridegroom. And so the gospel made this divine marriage possible. And the Apostle Paul's point is this. Marriage exists to preach that gospel. It's not about your personal happiness, though that is a fruit. Your marriage, our marriages exist to preach that gospel. And that gospel is the means. Let's go back to the main point of Ephesians. God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven on earth in Jesus Christ. He is making all things new. And that gospel is the means by which he is doing that very mission. So here is the first and the most important question we can ask of our parenting, what are our marriages preaching? The message that our marriages preach will either repel or attract 
our children to Jesus Christ. God desires that our children look at our marriages and think, I want a marriage like that, and I want a Savior, and I want a Lord like that, that can produce that kind of marriage. The gospel that marriages are to preach is that the bridegroom loves the bride so much that he allowed himself to be tortured to death on a Roman cross in the place of his bride so that peace would reign in the place of enmity and alienation. But the gospel isn't just about the groom. It also requires a response from the bride. This is what we'll look at today on this Mother's Day in our message, The First Principle of Motherhood. Now, the first thing we're going to see here is the expectation of biblical submission. Look with me in verse 22. The expectation of biblical submission. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, there's only three texts that address both husbands and wives. You have this passage, you have 1 Peter 3, and then you have Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. What's interesting is in all three of those passages where husbands and wives are addressed, in all three of those passages, wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now, if you'll remember, if you notice in verse 21, we saw last time, he said, we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is actually the last verse of a paragraph. The, uh, there is a, it's actually just one sentence, in fact, starting in verse 15. In the original language, verses 15 to 21 are one sentence. And at the very beginning of that sentence, it says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So, Paul is describing, and then he says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul here, starting in verse 22, is describing the Spirit-filled, wise walk. It's the walk of wisdom. It's the walk that is worthy of the calling, going all the way back to chapter 4, verse 1. Now, with verse 21 said, submitting... Uh, to one another out of reverence for Christ, is this a call to submit to each other? Is this a call to mutual submission? Some would say that. Some would say that because the actual verb is not found in verse 21. It's, it's kind of imputed there by the translators. Well, no, this is not a call to mutual submission. Uh, there, there is something asymmetrical about this. In other words, you don't See husbands called to submit to their wives. You don't see parents that we'll read about later in the passage called to submit to their children. And you don't see slave masters called to submit to slaves. Now, we're going to have to address that. He, Paul in no way endorses slavery. That's another discussion we'll have to talk about later. But you don't see these things. What he is saying here, based on verse uh, 21 is that we are to submit to one another in all appropriate context. 
There's always an appropriate context to our submission. And this is supported by the fact when he says be subject to, that verb is found elsewhere always in a context where someone is to submit to their authority. And so in Luke 2, you see Jesus submitting to his earthly parents. Luke 2.51. You see demons submitting to the disciples in Luke 10, verse 17. You see citizens who are called to submit to their government, Romans 13. And then you see we are called to submit to God in Hebrews 12, verse 9. Now, for 19 centuries... So I'm preaching to people like me uh, who have been raised in the late 20th and early 21st century. And a fish doesn't know it's wet. But for 19 centuries, Christians understood this notion of submission without confusion. It was never a debate in Christian circles. But these verses have become an embarrassment to many today because of the feminist movement that began in the 1960s. I say that. I've been uh, recently reading a book by Herman Bovic on the Christian family, and he's having to address these issues in like 1909. But it really was the 20th century that began to see these kind of verses and commands as an embarrassment And so how should we respond to the feminist liberation movements of our day? By reminding ourselves this is a matter of lordship. Again, what does he say? As to the Lord. It's a matter of lordship and it's actually an expression of true liberation. Now why do I say that? The last time this verb was used, submit, it was used in Ephesians 1 where it says all things have been brought underneath the feet of Christ. In other words, all things have been brought in submission. That verb in the original language is there. All things have been brought in submission to Jesus Christ through his cross and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so when Paul says, wives, he's speaking to Christian wives, Submit to your husbands. He is is saying this is as unto the Lord. It displays the redemption. It displays the liberation that our Lord Jesus Christ has achieved through his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And that's why submission is as unto the Lord. You're submitting ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ through the human agency of your husband. It is the Lord Jesus who is renewing the fallen things, and submission preaches the curse that we see in Genesis 3.16 has been reversed. Look at our marriage. And that brings us to the explanation for biblical submission in verse 23. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So the husband's headship, which we'll look at next week, is stated simply as a matter of fact. And Paul defines the husband's headship in relation to the headship of Jesus Christ, the savior. 
So Jesus' headship was already addressed in Ephesians 4 where he says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament as it grows and it builds itself up in love. And so it's from Jesus, the head, that the body grows in health, derives its health, and it grows. And that's endorsed by these words here at the end of verse 23, and is himself its savior. The head of the body is its savior. Now, obviously, anybody married here will tell you their husband's not their savior. They'll be quick to tell you that. That's not what Paul is saying here. The husband is to be a means of grace and an instrument of salvation, including progressive sanctification for his wife. We see that later in the passage where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. That's why C.S. Lewis was correct when he wrote that the headship of the husband isn't expressed in husbands doing what they want to do. But it's expressed in, in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion to self. That's what it means to be head as we serve as a a kind of living metaphor of the headship of Christ. And so at every stage of the married life, the husband is to do a kind of crucifixion audit on his life. He is to ask himself, is the way he is treating his wife correspondent the way Christ has loved us by his cross? And so if the husband's headship resembles Jesus' headship, then the wife's submission should resemble the church's submission to Christ. That brings us to the extent of biblical submission in verse 24. So we've seen the expectation and the explanation. And in verse 24, we see the extent. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So keep in mind, just as the church's new submission to Christ out of a previous rebellion, and that's what it was the moment we were converted, we have this new submission uh, to our Lord Jesus, our head, that replaces this former rebellion that speaks to his victory, that speaks to his lordship, a Christian's wife, a Christian's wife's submission or new submission to her husband speaks the same thing. So a, a wife submits to her husband and it, is, and it is preaching that indeed Christ is victorious. Look at what he has done in my life. Look what he has done in our marriage. Unfortunately, this mandate and this calling is remarkably controversial. Um, there are so many people today, professing Christians, who would like, get, like to get rid of that word, submission. So, for example, in, in 1998, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention issued a resolution 
that wives should submit to their husbands, and it caused a firestorm. Maybe you remember that, but that's not surprising. Shouldn't be surprising at all. This takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.16, when Moses describes what happened after Adam and Eve fell. And one of the fruits of that, the curse that would come, one of the fruits of the curse is that now the husband would rule over his wife and his wife's desire would be for him. Now, what does that mean? That means that the husband would rule his wife in a way that would devastate her. And there's a couple of ways a husband can do that. By being a a brutal man, a totalitarian, a controlling man, a violent man, an abusive man, or being spiritually passive, or both, or both. And either way, he rules over his wife in a domineering way. It controls her. It devastates her. But it also says that her desire will be for him. What does that mean? Well, that word is used later in Genesis 5 where it says, Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Her natural instinct after the fall will be to assert the leadership responsibilities of her husband. All right? And so the gospel is preaching that in Jesus Christ, this curse has been reversed. This is not chauvinism. It's creationism. Or better said, it's new creationism. In other words, marriages exist to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's get more detailed here. And, and this is the way I want to close out this message. Um, oftentimes, I'm asked, what does this mean? And sometimes you have to clarify what it does not mean. Because again, submission uh, can be misunderstood. And so first of all, I want to look at what submission does not mean. First thing we would see here is that submission is not grounded in the superiority of the husband nor in the inferiority of the wife. One of the things that Genesis 1 and 2 teach us is that when God created male and female as his image bearers, men and women as his image bearers, we were created equally. We have the same dignity, the same worth, the same nobility. Both genders are equally the image of God. Now, Genesis tells us that the wife was created to be the helpmate, the helper of the husband. And that that just sets some people just over the edge. That word is ezer uh, in, in Hebrew. And the reason I give it to you is that The word helper is not most often used for wives. It's used of God. So, for instance, in Psalm 118, verse 7, God is our helper. Is that demeaning to God, to be our helper? And so, uh, wives were intended to be the helpmate of their husbands, but there's nothing demeaning about that. We are equally the image of God. 
Second, submission does not mean that wives are obligated to follow their husbands lead into sin. And that would include abuse. Acts 5.29 says that we will obey God rather than man. And so when a wife is being abused by her husband, or she is being called by her husband to disobey the word of God, she is not to condone it. She is not to cooperate with it. And she is not to stay in an abusive situation at all, in any way. Third, submission does not mean that a wife must suppress her creative energy or adopt a passive approach to life. Just read Proverbs 31 and see how industrious this excellent wife is. Note her initiative. Note her creativity. Fourth, submission does not mean silence. Many wrongly think that a wife is being unsubmissive if she constructively criticizes her husband. Let me just tell you, on a weekly basis, I need constructive criticism. And my wife is the first to step up for that task. (laughs) But she does it in a gracious way. Nor does it mean... That she can't make requests of him. So if you have, you, I see some husbands who are just really controlling of their wives. That wife is not a floor mat. And if a husband is controlling his wife, she needs to step up because that is not good for their marriage. And it, and it really serves as a, an eclipse of the gospel. And then it does not mean that she can't teach him. Husbands are not smarter than wives. Oftentimes, wives are smarter than husbands, actually. Husbands are not more gifted than wives. Oftentimes, wives are more gifted than husbands. And wives have something to teach their husbands. So the submission does not mean silence. Fifth, submission does not mean that everything a wife does must be directly depended upon or related to the husband. For example, activities outside the home. And I make that point because I have seen husbands who smother their wives and suppress the giftings and the graces and the opportunities that the Lord has given her. It just simply means that nothing she's to do outside the home should undermine her primary responsibilities to the home, which we know clearly from Titus chapter 2. So what then does submission mean? Given uh, this clarity on what it doesn't mean, well, first of all, uh, this is not a comprehensive list. This this is just a few specific uh, suggestions. First of all, submission is the disposition to honor a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. Men thrive when they're leading. Their homes. And homes do not thrive when men are not leading. And so wives, it's, a, it's an inclination to submit to his leadership. John Piper, in his book on marriage, says, 
It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you are passive. And I have to make the sure the family works. It grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. That happens way too often in Christ church. I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I, I can respond joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin as much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage. Christ is my king. That's a good word. Second, it's a commit, commitment to support one's husband in a way that he may reach his potential as a man of God. So what does that mean? Well, it's, for instance, making the home a, a, a safe place, free from sinful influence. A few years ago, for whatever reason, these magazines started sending us uh, copies of their magazine to our mailbox. We didn't subscribe to these things. They were just wanting our business, and so they started sending us magazines. And let me just tell you, some of these magazines had some sordid covers. And so Heather just made a, an executive decision there. She says, you're not going to the mailbox. And I didn't. And, and she took care of those magazines before they came into the home. I would also say, um, wives, don't be naive with certain movies that your husband are shows that your husband has no business viewing. And so a wife protects her home from sinful influence. Sex, striving to be dependable and, and trustworthy, providing affirmation and encouragement. Men need encouragement from their wives deeply. Now, husbands, we're coming after you next week, so don't get too comfortable. <laughs> Building loyalty to, with him, with the children, and showing confidence in his decisions. How often have I, when I was counseling a couple, have heard the man say, she corrects me, she belittles me in front of the children. Well, when you do that, there is, you cannot in any way call your children to respect and honor their father. If you're not publicly respecting in honoring their father. If you have a word with the father, the husband, your husband, take it behind closed doors. It is a horrific thing to do in front of the children. Take an interest in what he's doing at work. Respond joyfully to his initiatives. Take care of your home in such a way that it's a pleasant place for him to be. Take initiative to do things that will ease his busy schedule. Seek his counsel on important decisions. Speak respectfully about him to others. Don't degrade your husband to others. Now, you may need counsel, and you may have a, a sister in the faith that you can talk to, but don't degrade your husband in the process. Give him the opportunity to lead rather than quickly jumping in to take control. Be content with his provision for your family unless he's refusing to work. 
And then you may need to come see the elders at that point. And then regularly praying that he would live out God's intentions for him. Pray for your husband. Now, here's a question. What happens if your husband's not a Christian? I saw a statistic sometime back that 25% of women in the church today attend without their husbands, 25%. I don't know what that statistic tells us, but it, it, it seems to indicate there are a lot of Christian women who are married to unbelieving husbands. So what do you do in that particular case? Is a, is a believing wife to submit to an unbelieving husband? Well, listen to the words of 1 Peter. Wives, be subject. There's that same verb. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, and that is a description of someone who's not a believer, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so submission doesn't mean you agree with everything with your husband. In this particular case, he, she disagrees with the most important reality, God. But it does mean, submission does mean that you don't give up all efforts to change your husband. And Peter is saying, here's the main way you can do that. He envisions submission as the most effective strategy in changing him. I would even venture to say that would be the case with believing husbands. There's areas perhaps in his life that you would like to see changed. You submit to him and it, and it softens him. It'll disarm him. It has a, a, an effect on your husband. Third, submission fulfills the purpose of completing one another. Now, why do I say that? Well, again, when, when Paul tells the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, uh, to, to sanctify her, to cleanse her by the washing with the water, with the word, and then in verse 31, he talks about the fact that he has made the two one flesh. Um, marriage has the purpose of completing one another in some fashion. It's the pouring of oneself into the completion of another. It's the sacrificing of self to make a relationship and another person whole. So think about this, this analogy. Uh, we're like oars out of a mine. When you got married, you, you saw primarily the gold in your husband, right? And vice versa, the husband saw the gold in you. But as time goes on, you begin to see attitudes and personality traits that are remnants of the old self that we could call dross. But that dross is going to be burned up in the light of God's glory over time. God does that progressively in marriage, and he'll do it ultimately in glory, upon death. So these flaws that you see in your spouse, in this particular case, your husband, they're not permanent. 
if they're a Christian. They're not permanent, but they can loom large in a marriage, can't they? Every wife here would say, I'm in. And yet if husbands and wives, wives and husbands, learn to make the distinction between the dross that's going to be burned up in the day of glory and the gold, that's huge. That's massive in a marriage. Instead of saying that's just the way he is and I despise it, remember that's the part of him, that part that you hate that's not real and ultimate and it's not permanent. That's very helpful to think about. Fourth, submission is fundamentally an, uh, an attitude, an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not based on the worth of your earthly husband, or no one could submit. In fact, oftentimes it's in spite of your earthly husband. This is a, ultimately an act of submission to your greater head, your greater Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a lordship issue. In other words, submission signals that Jesus Christ is the reigning Lord, and he has given you by the Spirit all divine resources to obey him even in this difficult marriage. Dick Lucas says this, According to Paul, there's no possibility of a married woman's surrender to a heavenly Christ which is not made visible and actual by some submission to an earthly husband. And when it is ignored, it does not make life better for women. It actually makes life worse. Many of the stresses and many of the strains on family life today are precisely due to disagreeing or ignoring this. So wives, mothers, by your submission, you preach. You preach. Marriages exist for something bigger than us to proclaim, to picture the gospel. Again, this little passage here is situated in a larger passage. God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth, and marriage has a critical role to play in this. And that's why marriage is the first principle of motherhood. When you got married you got into something that was not invented by man. That's why we, uh, that we do not have the autonomy to redefine marriage, to fit the, the culture, the norms of the culture, because it wasn't invented by us. If it had been invented by us, it was some kind of product of evolutionary process. We, we have the autonomy to change, uh, to change uh, marriage, but, but it wasn't invented by us. It was invented by God. So if you determine to run your marriage your way, you're in for a lot of trouble. And so are your children. And so is your husband. Because marriage is God's institution. It's God's institution. And because it's God's institution, we must ask, what can we do to obtain a marriage like the one we see here in Ephesians 5. Well, first, as a husband and as a wife, both draw near to God. Guess what happens? They draw near to each other. And so corporate worship 
immersion into the life of the church and then praying together. Praying together as a family, praying together as a couple. Uh, One marriage counselor said that when a couple first comes to him, he asked them, do you pray together on a regular basis? And he said, I've never received in all my years of counseling a positive response from a couple whose marriage is in trouble. That's quite telling, isn't it? He's never seen or heard of a positive response to that question. A couple whose marriage is in trouble. And men, submission is already a monumental task, but you can make it easier by loving your wives as Christ loved the church. And one of the central means by which we grow in our capacity to love as Christ loved the church is the table. I think it's an appropriate day to celebrate the table. Because really what Paul is calling us to do requires us for our hearts to be enlarged. As the psalmist says, enlarge my heart that I may obey your commandments. Our hearts are puny because of our sin, right? We need our hearts enlarged. And and the way our hearts are enlarged to love, the way Paul has called us to love in this passage, is to behold the greatest demonstration of love that man has ever known. In fact, it's what defines love. John says, this is love, not that you love God. You can't take credit there, but he loved you and gave his son as a propitiation for your sins. That is, he satisfied God's wrath on your sin for those who believe. And he said, if God so loved you in this way, so you ought to love one another in that way. Absorbing the debt that my partner, my spouse owes that I might have relationship with him, with her. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the supreme model for that. And as we behold that gospel, guess what happens? Our hearts are enlarged. And our capacity to love grows and is strengthened. And the way wives are to love their husbands comes through submission. The way husbands are to love their wives is by taking up a cross, doing a crucifixion audit. And so here at the table, we're going to behold, we're going to celebrate that glorious event that we know as Christ's finished work for us in our salvation. 